to you, especially as you make your way through the book of Acts, you see that there was so much that was rather spontaneous in the early church. They were open to the, to the Holy Spirit and what he wanted to do and what he wanted to say. And Some people find that uncomfortable. I get that. We're a people of habit. I understand that. But we also need to be a people that are open to the immediate moving of the Holy Spirit. At any time, he may prompt you to say something to a friend or to pray for a lost one. Just, just be open. That is all that is required of you these last days. Just an openness, an open channel between heaven and earth that you are 24-7 cognizant of. It is incumbent upon us. Ephesians chapter 3, if you're not already there, Paul, of course, the author, the guy who was saved, <laughs> who was the original terrorist, if you will, uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 9, where God knocked him off his high horse, and he'd been zealous for God to the point that he was killing Christians. And then God knocked him off that prideful high horse, and he looked up to this bright light in heaven, and Jesus spoke and said, why do you persecute me, Paul? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Oh, and I think that's how any of us got saved, a revelation from God. In a moment where he humbled us, gave us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church, and a heart willing to open itself to him and respond. That's all God has ever wanted from his people. That's why the Bible is written. God has no interest in making you a scholar. He wants to make you in the image of his son. That's what he's doing. And every time I turn around, I see Jesus quoting the Bible. He knows that thing forwards to back. And you say, well, that's easy. He was God. Yeah. He took upon himself all of the limitations of human flesh, which means his memory was no better than yours and mine. He just happened to have spent a lot of time in the Word. That's why he knew it. He wasn't trying to impress anybody with his Bible flashcards. He just knew the Word of God because he'd been in it so often. You and I should be as well. Paul has been saved at the writing of this book about 60 AD. He's been saved about 25 years, and he's about 60 years old. When he was saved, he was a Pharisee. You had to be 35 years of, old, of age to be a Pharisee in Israel. So if you put his conversion date at about 35 AD and his age, that he is about 60 years old as he writes, has known the Lord, been walking with him for, for 25 years. He's a prisoner in Rome as he writes this, and yet he is not preoccupied with his situation. You and I have that tendency, don't we, to where when the, when the roof falls in, we think, oh, it's all about us, and nobody has ever gone through what we have gone through, and there's an urgency, and you should feel sorry for me, and you don't have any idea how hard my life is, like you're the first one on the planet that ever had a hard life. And I read that Paul was not obsessed with his situation, but he had, a, he had such a shepherd's heart for other people. He cared about how other people were doing. He scarcely mentions the fact that he's in jail uh, writing from Rome. It's one, the first of the so-called prison epistles for that. It was carried by a friend who had visited him in jail together with Colossians and Philemon. And uh, this circular letter was taken back, and he says, well, and it, 
Ephesus was a huge town, so it got around. The letter got around. It was meant to be a, a circular letter. The first half of the book is all about what God has done for you, and this is what Paul consistently does in any of the epistles, the letters that he wrote. First half of the book is not about you. It's not about him. It's all about what God has done for all of us. And I think that is a, a consistent pattern that the Holy Spirit of God had put on his heart. Always make God priority, not you, not your situation, not whatever you're going through. All of those can be lifted up to God and constantly should be, for sure. But we should pray for each other, which means sometimes we have to get out of ourselves. We have this meet and greet time in our church because that was, that's biblical. There was a period of koinonia in the early church where they met each other and had fellowship. They shared meals. They would get to know each other. In fact, what I'd like to do because, <clears throat> let me ask for a show of hands. How many of you are embarrassed to ask the same person for four consecutive weeks what his name is? Because you forgot. We all forget, and that's not just something old guys do. We all forget. So next week, I need my associate pastors to listen carefully. We're doing name tags. All we want is your first name because that's hard enough to memorize. Uh, you put your last name on it, we're lost at the get-go. So just your first name, we'll greet you at the front door, and we'll either give you a magic marker and have you put your name on them and slap it on you. It would just aid fellowship here a little bit, you know. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. We just want to get to know you better and on a more personal level. And, and you could see mine, you go, oh, yeah, I forgot your name. Your name is Jim. You're that crazy guy in the Hawaiian shirts, aren't you? Yeah, some things never change. First half of the book is all about God in all of his epistles. And, and the second half of the book is all about our response to what God has done. That just burns in his heart of knowing, first of all, the entire motivation for my life is what God's done. Religion is what we can do for God. The Bible is all about what God has already done for us and how we can respond to that reasonably. That's all it is. It's not legalistic. It's not harsh. But once you realize who God is and all that he's done for you, the rest of it falls right into place. We dare not take him for granted. We dare not take the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for granted, nor forget what indeed he has done for us. That's why we celebrate communion at the first Sunday of every month. We need to remember always that Jesus died on the cross. His blood was shed so that yours might be spared. He died so that you and I might live. He gave his life to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. He, there was no sin in him. He died for you and me. He took our place. And then the Father raised him from the dead on the third day to prove, in fact, he was the Son of God. And nobody else has ever done that. There is no other Savior candidate in the world. Buddha can't save you. Muhammad can't save you. Statues of idols all over the world. But only one hung on a cross in Palestine in fulfillment of God's Word to save us from our sins. If you think you're getting into heaven any other way, we need to talk right after church. There's a lot of deception out there in the world. Well, I got baptized when I was a youngster in the Catholic church, so I'm saved, right? You got wet. Baptism is biblically defined as something that adults do once they appreciate 
what Jesus has done for them and want to choose to identify themselves with his death, burial, and resurrection. Roman Catholic Church can't change you. It can't save you. I grew up in New York City as a Roman Catholic kid. Been there and done that. And I was so turned off by the whole religion thing of do's and don'ts and went to stand and genuflect in the book and turn to this and do that and guys swinging smelly censers down in the robes. I'm going, what is the gig? I don't get it. Don't get it. And then the priests afterwards would have a kegger out in the parking lot and play basketball until they couldn't walk anymore. And I thought, if this is religion, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to do with it all. I saw such hypocrisy. I just walked away from it all. Then some guy told me about Jesus Christ. My uncle came all the way up from Florida to New York City when I was going to college and just to tell me about Jesus. And I, he was a, a deacon in his church back in Florida, an Assembly of God church back there. Man, he loved Jesus. And, I, you know, I remember our conversation. Well, Billy, you're a religious man. It's working for you. That's great. I'm an engineer, uh, aerospace engineer going to school. You know, if I can't see, feel it, taste it, touch it, or smell it, it, it isn't real. And he just took my arguments apart, made me feel like a fool that knew nothing. And he said, I'm not advocating re religion, Jimmy. Religion cannot save you. It didn't die for you. It didn't die for your sins. It didn't lead a sinless life so that it could die for your sins. Only Jesus did that. And I said, well, how do you have a relationship with the dead guy? Like you go and visit his corpse or something? I mean, is this a graveyard Halloween thing? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not understanding. I knew nothing. And he told me, well, he's not, he, he rose from the dead. I said, he what? He rose from the dead, yeah. And then he was seen by over 500 people, 500 eyewitnesses. He ascended back into heaven in the plain sight of all of his disciples, and you can talk to him now. He's there. He's in heaven interceding for you constantly. And I said, no way. Serious? He must not know me. He knew me, and he wanted to have a relationship with me. And that blew me away. It humbled me. And I confessed my sins, and one day a long time ago, all by myself, my mobile home, having pondered these truths that were shared with me, I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And he washed me all of my sins away in that moment, and it was incredible. I had a Paul-like moment. He was knocked off of his high horse. I, I couldn't afford a donkey, so I didn't have a horse to not be knocked off of. But, boy, I was humbled and I was broken, not by the fear of hell, but by the love of God. For God so loved the world, and I thought... Loving the world be hard enough. Loving me, despite me, it blew me away. Paul knew what that felt like to be loved and forgiven and then filled with God's Holy Spirit and used for his glory. That's why he wrote this book. He wants to share the joy of his salvation with you and I. Now, if you don't know that joy this morning, you are standing in the way. It's not on God. Let me tell you what, he's already done his part. He's already sent his son, written the book, sent his Holy Spirit. We're kind of without excuse. So if we don't have Paul's joy and victory this morning, maybe we need to revisit how tight our relationship actually is with the Lord. Is there room for improvement? Can I draw nearer to him? That's always going to be Paul's encouragement. 
to show these guys, as I said, what God has done and what our reasonable response should be. Paul is a lot like me sometimes. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he starts off a sentence and then gets sidetracked. He doesn't even complete the sentence before he gets sidetracked. And then he takes a 14-verse diversion, and then he goes, oh, yeah, I started off talking about this, didn't I? I, I love his letters. I mean, they didn't have word processing on a computer back then, so all, the, all of the glitches that we would consider errors in, in human uh, English language, uh, he, he comes back on. But he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and there he breaks off. Train just takes off in a different direction. Somebody threw the rail, and he switches gears, and he is off and running on a different path. So he comes back. He comes back. This, by the way, is one of the greatest challenges of any small group leader. What do you do with rabbit trails? You, you're, you're wanting to get through this material right here, and then somebody goes, yo, well, what about this? And what about that? And, what about, and it, comes, it starts looking like a tree after a while. You're chasing all of these shoots, and it is a, a challenge to any small group leader here in the church or in each other's homes to kind of, okay, we can chase the rabbit trail for a while, but we really need to come back. Well, that's what Paul does in verse 14. He decides to chase a rabbit trail of his own that was, I believe, laid on his heart by the Holy Spirit of God. It's one of those things where, have you ever had a moment where you're sitting down and you think of something completely different and hope that you remember it later? Well, after 45, you realize if you don't write it down, it's never going to happen. And so in those moments where I'm sitting down or watching TV and some thought occurs to me, man, I'm grabbing a piece of paper, write it down, and that way I don't forget it. That way I feel, I feel free to chase the rabbit trail because I know, know I need to come back to this. Well, that's what God has laid on Paul's heart. But he starts off with something that's very important for this reason, because we're picking it up in, in, the, in a, three chapters. In this, We're going, for what reason? Well, because of all that God has done for us. That's occupied the previous chapters. All that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, he has made us alive with Christ by grace through faith. He, he's raised us up in the heavenlies with Christ seated us with him in the heavenlies, forgiven us all of our sins. Whew, there's nothing that feels better than knowing that you're loved and you're forgiven. Loved and forgiven. Your sins kept you apart from God, but they've been forgiven now if you're a child of Christ. You've been filled with this Holy Spirit. Jesus, by his blood, has brought us near to God, and he has given us freely of his Holy Spirit to personally indwell us. You write them off sometimes as conscience, and it's the Holy Spirit of God encouraging you to do what's right. Your conscience doesn't always tell you to do what's right. He's forging us, Christians around the globe, into one body, his church, the body of Christ, a a dwelling in which God lives by His Holy Spirit, Paul had told us back in chapter 2 and verse 22. Because of all that God's done, Paul, a prisoner, he's sitting in Rome, and yet he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Isn't that cool? What he says is, yeah, I'm in jail, no big deal. I'm here by the will of God. Most of us don't do that. When we are in difficult and or unpleasant circumstances or situations, we never say, I'm sick by the will of God. We don't want to be sick, so we don't say that. I'm here in jail, persecuted as a Christian in Albania 
I'm here by the will of God. I mean, people were getting saved in jail when Paul was there. God had a reason and a purpose. So he may find, you may find yourself in some very difficult places in this life, but know that God is there with you. He has you there for a reason and a purpose, to, to give Him glory. Whether it's maybe somebody in the hospital needs Jesus, needs you to pray for Him, needs you to love on Him. It's weird the number of times I've been in doctor's offices and somebody there needs Jesus. Somebody there needs a word of encouragement. Somebody there is really down and despairing. Somebody there just needs a word of prayer. You've got to be led of the Holy Spirit to discern those times. But Paul says, yeah, I'm here. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, not of Rome. I'm, a, I'm his prisoner. He's got a grip on my heart. I'm chained to him. He's not going nowhere. I'm not going nowhere. For the sake of you Gentiles, I am what I am because of Jesus Christ. I am what I am for Jesus Christ. That's how Paul saw himself. Paul saw every moment of every day as God's will for him. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at life? We tend to parse things up. This is work. This is recreation. This is church. We tend to parse things up. Compartmentalization, we typically call that. And yet, for Paul, for Jesus, they seemed to live for God 24-7. They, they, there was no setting aside entertainment from work, from going to church. It was all existed and lived out for God's purposes. I would encourage you to look at life the same way. Otherwise, you're going to love some parts of life and hate others. You're going to say, I love watching football games on Sunday afternoon and Monday night football, but I hate mowing the lawn. But if you saw mowing the lawn as the will of God, you might look at it different. We tend to think of inconveniences as hassles when I believe most of them are God-given opportunities. Your flesh doesn't like them. That's why you grouse. That's why you grumble. Is it the will of God? Yeah, or he wouldn't have allowed it. Just say, thank you, Lord. Stop trying to understand what God's doing and just believe that God's doing it, that he's going to work in, on, and through whatever circumstances you have. I know there's lots of unpleasant things that happen to us. It's been the history of the church. And the things that have happened to the church in times past have never happened to you and I. And yet they gave God glory and honor and praise, even if it meant the giving up of their own lives. So in all, in every situation, every good time, every bad time, give honor and glory and thanks to God. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus that you give thanks for all things. All things. Doesn't it say in Romans, all things work together for the good? You said to amen and you shook your head, but you don't mean it. You don't like bad things. You like the good things because you know they work together for the good because they feel good. The test of your faith is when going through those difficulties, you say all things work together for the good. You say it to your own soul. So many of the Psalms, David was speaking to himself, reminding himself of the Word of God. So in the difficulties of life, that's when you internalize Scripture. Do you realize it's only in the difficulties of life that your faith grows? It's not when the world is coming up and the roses are blooming and the sun's shining on your face. That's not where faith grows. 
Faith grows in the difficult places when you lean upon God and don't trust in your own understanding where you pray seriously, more seriously than you ever have before. That's where your faith grows, and yet your flesh despises those times. But this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Can you embrace that? Paul did, so he doesn't complain. He had nothing to complain about. He saw everything as the will of God. And then his rabbit trail takes off there in verse 2. And, and I just love this. We older types sometimes do this, uh, our rabbit trails. He'll get back to it, his original thought in verse 14. But, uh, of course, you, don't, you never take off on rabbit trails, do you? Verse 2, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. You have heard my story. You've heard my testimony. You guys know how I got saved. You guys know who I used to was and who I am now. By the will of God. You've heard all of that stuff. That is, verse 3, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Hmm. In other words, Paul says, I'm called by God to help you understand something that was not clearly visible in the Old Testament. The church in the Old Testament is a mystery. That is, you can look back in the Old Testament, you go, I don't clearly see any predictions of the church. And yet, the, Jesus died to establish the church. So it was a mystery. It was hidden from the Old Testament folks, by and large. For instance, another instance that, that was a mystery. They, in, they would read some of the scriptures about the coming Messiah, and his kingdom would last forever. And they would read other scriptures out of Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant who died. Well, how do you have a kingdom that lasts forever in somebody that dies? They couldn't, they couldn't put the two together. It was a what? A mystery. How is this going to work out? They didn't know. We, we have a cl much clearer understanding uh, uh, of that today, and I, I praise God for that. But a mystery uh, is something that is not crystal clear at the time that it's given. But we know from Scripture it was always God's will because every single person that's ever lived on this planet is made in the image of God. It's always been His goal to get us back together as one entity called the body of Christ. All of us, not Jews, not Gentiles, not different nations or languages or things that typically divide, but it was always God's intention all along to reconcile the entire universe back to Himself. And it starts with the salvation of the people that he's made. But that was not clearly seen in the Old Testament. So the Jews misunderstood it and said, well, I guess we're saved by keeping the law. And we know now reading the New Testament, no, the law simply convicted them of their sins. They were saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament, not by keeping the law, because everybody blew it. Nobody kept the law perfectly, and James tells us if you've broken the law in just one point, you've broken all of the law. So none of us can be saved by trying to be religious enough or hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad, because God's standard is perfection. If there is one bad deed on your record from the womb to the tomb, you're self-condemned. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah would say. What pleases God is when we confess, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I can't keep your law. I've done a trillion wrong things just in the last like five years. 
I can't even remember how many I committed before. Then, God, would you forgive me all of my sins, come into my heart and life and save me, Lord Jesus, turn my life around. That's a sinner's prayer in a nutshell. The moment you pray that prayer is the moment you're forgiven and you start a new journey. Well, Paul's journey meant sharing this good news, this mystery called the church, that God is taking Jews and Gentiles, former enemies of each other, and He's forming them together into one body called the church. That's the mystery that he's talking about that God had graced him with by way of his uh, spiritual calling. Verse 3, that is the mystery made known to be by revelation... It's been revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already written briefly. In writing this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. And now God has called him to take the gospel to the, all of the Gentiles throughout the whole Roman kingdom. And people would say, well, what? That makes no sense at all. There was such racial animosity then. Understand this, that racism is fueled by the fires of hell. Racism isn't of God. How many of us of different skin colors have been made in the image of God? Never forget that. That will dispel any hint of racism in you. God does not have a southern accent and hate northerners. He's not for the north when when the south was raised up fighting for slavery. He doesn't like blacks or whites or brown-skinned people any better than anybody else on this planet. We are all made in the image of God, you know? And we ought to praise God for the diversity that we see amongst the skin colors and the geographical location. And, and, And just look at each other in the planet the plan is overhead and the nations around the world and go, he's a God of marvelous variety, infinite variety. I mean, he broke the mold when he made you. Some of you say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but all of us are uniquely made by the will of God. We are who we are because that's the way God wanted to make you. You have the potential of putting a smile on God's face just like you are. Once you come to the throne of grace, confess your sins, you're a child of God. And he has a work for you to do, not just the Apostle Pauls that are out there. So you let Jesus invade every part of your life, your life will be rich indeed. Don't compartmentalize. Take Jesus with you everywhere you go. His name should always be close to your lips. His heart in your heart, his mind in your mind, his words in your mouth. Don't compartmentalize. Some people think that, well, I can go out and party and get drunk on Friday or Saturday and it's all good. God doesn't really care. He's not really with me. Really? What makes you think that? He's with us 24-7. 24-7. He's looking over your shoulder. 24-7. He's looking at what your eyes look at. 24-7, he's watching TV with you. He knows what you do, what you say, what you think. But you and I don't practice the presence of God much. So we compartmentalize. Can I tell you, he's there all the time. Uh, you live like that is, in fact, the reality that it is. Don't ever compartmentalize. 
Don't ever try to hide something from Don't say, oh, well, I do this when I go to church, but I do this when it's my own time. I rec-. You don't own anything anymore. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. You got your hook, line, and sinker. People didn't clearly see this mystery of how God would make Jews and Gentiles one, but it was revealed to Paul, and he took it to the nations. Look at verse 5, which was not made known to men in other generations, but it's now been revealed by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles and prophets. They're explaining this to you. That's the whole New Testament. Through the gospel of Gentiles, here's the mystery, that you Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. We've been grafted into all of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. Their Messiah is our Messiah. Their future now becomes our future because God has done away with the differences between Jews and Gentiles. We partake of all of these glorious promises. The Jews should have known that. Throughout the Old Testament, God was always talking about uh, like when he would send his son, he would be a light to the Gentiles. The Jews, I don't know how they missed that exactly. It was so plain, Isaiah 42 and verse uh, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. He was speaking of the Messiah. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That's why Jesus came, to set us free from our sins. In Malachi 1 and verse 11, my name will be great amongst the nations, all of the nations. That's what God is doing today. He loves all of us. He died for all. He lives for all. Your life is now tightly bound up with His. His resurrection guarantees yours. Life is transient and temporary, but what you do with it is really important. God will hold you accountable for every moment, every breath, every opportunity. Maybe we will stand before His throne someday. He said, well, that's fine. You're a pastor, so you got more in common with Paul than I do. Hmm. Write this down, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you, all of you, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you, all of us, you plural, may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Boy, what special position is ours, privilege. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul doesn't declare himself to be the greatest among the apostles in verse 7. He describes himself in the lowliest of terms, a doulost in the original Greek. It meant a household slave. Verse 7, I became a slave, a servant of this gospel, a diakonia, where we get the word deacon. It means literally table waiter. So Paul says, yeah, I don't mind putting on an apron and waiting on tables. I don't have any problem doing that. All. I got no problem emptying trash cans in the church if that's what needs to be done. I'll cook me, whatever. It didn't matter to Paul. I became a servant of this gospel, verse 7, by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of His power. 
dunamis. Oh, I love that word, dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite or dynamo, which is a productive, more productive use of that energy than in dynamite. Though I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He describes himself in these terms because he never forgot his past. That's the only reason that you should think about your past from time to time, just to remind you of all that God has brought you through, all the sin that God has forgiven, all of the trials and the tests and the hard times that he brought us through successfully. Remember, remember. Jesus said when we come together for communion, he said, remember. That's why we celebrate that. So I don't live in the past, but I am grateful for the past that I've been delivered from. You will meet up with people from time to time in this life. Say, hey, I haven't seen you in so long. What have you been up to? You're a pastor? You're a what? And then they laugh. Well, I remember when you were. (laughs) You remember that? Yeah, I remember that all too well. That guy died. That's who I was, but by the grace of God, it is not who I am. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. That's why you have a past, to share with people what God has delivered you from. He loves you so much. You are his mouthpiece in in this day and age. But do you have that same servant mentality that Paul describes himself in verse 7 as? A minister, a, a diakonos, a table waiter? I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what ministry is. A lot of ministers themselves have a really bad idea. They think they see themselves as CEOs. I don't want to be a CEO. I want to be a shepherd. I want to be a pastor. Ministry is not a profession that's chosen by enthusiastic, idealistic young men. The ministry is a calling of God. Spurgeon used to put it this way, a famous English preacher of a bygone era. He said, if you can avoid the call of God on your life as a minister, uh, do it by all means. Run from it as hard and fast as you can. But if you must follow God's calling on your life to be a minister, I'd love to have you in my pastor's Bible college. You can't get away from God's call on your life. It is who you are, who you were meant to be. But a ministry is not, well, Pastor Jim, he only works one day a week. He's got nothing else to do. He just, you know, study a book here, a book there once in a while, steal somebody else's sermon. I mean, how hard can it be being a pastor? (sighs) It would be easier for you to have brain surgery without anesthesia. Ministry is something that you have to be called to, but each of us is called but gifted and equipped very uniquely. There will never be another one like you. So there will never be another gifting and spiritual calling that is exactly like yours. And even how that that same spiritual gift that you may share with us, it'll take on a very unique look when you wear that set of clothes. That's by the will of God. The manifestations of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are different different people and situations and people that they're trying to minister to. 
nothing is rubber stamped in the kingdom of God except that we all look like Jesus eventually. That's who I want to become more and more like. A minister doesn't mean that you get to rule over people or exercise authority. Being a minister does not put you on a higher plane than anybody else. Doesn't make you any closer to God. Being a minister does not mean that people cater to you all the time. I don't have them tripping over themselves to come up to me in restaurants saying, can I pay your bill? That's not the way that works. And you wouldn't want to take advantage of that even if it did happen that way. Being a minister does not exempt you from normal, does make you immune from temptation and sin. It's just a unique calling that God has laid on the minister's heart. And he'll give him a shepherd's heart to go along with that calling. A minister can sin as easily as anyone else, maybe even more so. You've heard of many pastors that have fallen over the years. It does, however, this calling into ministry bring us into greater judgment than others because of my sin. It says in James 3.1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's a serious charge. I will stand before God, and He's going to ask me as a pastor of Calvary Chapel Eastside, did you feed my sheep? Did you love my sheep? Did you share the Word of God with them even when it was uncomfortable? Or did you just cherry-pick the passages you knew wouldn't offend? I will answer to that, you will not. But this calling is something that is God-given, just like God's calling on your life. You may be a housewife by the call and will of God. You may be raising children. You could be a welder, a teacher, president of the United States, and 10,000 things in between by the perfect will of God. That's what you should be seeking. That's why God gave you life. What is God's perfect will and calling upon your life? You need to think that through. If you don't know what that is, inquire of the Lord. Search out His Word. Minister is a servant. And I love Paul's humility. He says in verse 8, Though I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. All that He has done for us, it is unfathomably wonderful. First Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Have you thought about heaven? What's heaven like? Most of us think that heaven is just like earth, only better. Well, that's like saying Walmart is better than a blue light special at Kmart. Uh, wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. Think beyond this world. Think beyond the Kmarts and Walmarts of this world. Think on how rich and glorious the calling of God on our lives is. You want a tantalizing taste of heaven sometime? Read Revelation 21 and 22. Awesome stuff. You have no idea how glorious your future is. These few brief years that we share on planet Earth are simply opportunities to encourage other people, pray for them, share the kingdom of God, and grow and mature in the faith ourselves. That's why we're here. When you're done, he's done, you're home. And that's the way you want it to be. But if you took your last breath, it means that God's not done with you yet. 
Maybe God has scarcely begun with you yet. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Here's why. He's crossing your arms and glaring at me. Won't get you an inch closer to heaven. In any gathering like this, you have sheep and goats. The difference, do you know what the difference between sheep and goats is? All goats want to do is argue and butt heads and eat trash. The transformation takes place at the foot of the cross when you humble yourself, and all of a sudden there's this transformation from a goat into a lamb of God, a child of God. What a wonderful translation, transformation that is. No longer do you want to butt heads and eat trash. <laughs> Demand your own way. God loves you. God loves you. You may not love yourself. Nobody else on this planet may love you, but God loves you. How much does God love you? Yeah, about this much. And then nails were driven through his hands and his feet to show you how much he loved you. And he hung on that cross bearing the penalty your sins deserved. His blood flowed so that by his stripes we might be healed. Don't fight God. Oh, he's got such a glorious present for you and a more glorious future than any of us could possibly imagine. Paul's humility comes through because he's been saved. He realizes what he's been saved from in verse 8. I'm the least of all God's people. But this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentile these unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, this welding together of Jews and Gentiles into the body of Christ, blacks and whites and males and females and slave and free and rich and poor, for which in the ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, verse 10, was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Good angels and bad angels alike. Jesus hung on the cross to tell heaven and earth that God is alive and well and in the business of redemption. And someday all of this universe will be walking in harmony with his perfect will. And all of those that have fought against him and wanted nothing to do with him, he will assign a place where he is not. People in this world don't want anything to do with God, so he'll put them in hell where he is not. That's what they wanted. He's simply giving them what they wanted. Don't want God in your life? Don't blame yourself. Yeah, you should blame yourself for where you wind up. According to verse 11, his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that cool? When Christ died, the, the veil in the temple separating the holy of holies from the outer compartment, the, the veil that separated us from the very presence of God, that was torn in two. And so every child of God now has 24-7 access to God. You don't have to pray through Mary. You don't have to pray through the saints. Quite frankly, they just get in the way. You have a direct access between you and God. It, it's the red phone in the White House. You pick it up and you're talking to the, the big guy. That's what, the, that's what prayer is. You have that instant access. And it says we can come 
with, we can approach God with freedom and confidence, not arrogance and demanding. We can get a little confused in light of errant teaching that is out there today. Well, it's your right to approach the throne of God and demand of Him whatever you want. I don't advise you try that. That's arrogant. That's so arrogant. And what I really want in my heart of hearts is God's perfect will for me. Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. That's surrender. Every Christian heart should feel that way constantly. What is God's will for me? Then walk in it. How do I know what God's will is for me? It's written in the Bible. It's God's will that we walk in holiness, in purity, in righteousness, that we seek after Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love Him the same way and love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not complicated. We just struggle doing it. We know what God requires of us. We let busyness get in the way. We let busyness get in the way, the tyranny of the urgent. And so that all you want to do on the weekends is veg. So you don't read, you don't pray, and wonder why you're such a slacker on Monday morning. You haven't been with God all, all on your days off. It doesn't help you spiritually. Get in God's Word. Pray. Well, I don't know where to begin in God's Word. Gospel of John in the New Testament, read a chapter a day as slowly as you can, apply it to your life, and keep moving to the right. Any questions? Call the office. Not complicated. Gospel of John, it tells you all about Jesus. Then you're ready to run into the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. And what follows after that is letters written by people like Paul, writing to the church, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Not difficult. Not difficult. You read it. You heed it. All will turn out well. Verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God just want to park on that. I just want to park on that for a while. I just soak that in that I have unspeakable, unfettered access to God 24-7. I am not a victim of the, this fallen world. I can pray. I have victory over the powers of darkness. I can come against demons. I can cast out demons by the power of Christ in me. The same Holy Spirit is in you and I that was in Christ Jesus when he was doing the same thing. But sometimes we forget that, so they, people call the church, Pastor, would you come over to my house and anoint it with oil? Why don't you break out the oil and anoint your house and pray over it? No, like, there's, you, do you think there's something more special about my prayers than yours? There's not. There's not. I'm praying to the same God. I'm bringing the same olive oil. <laughs> it's not the oil that heals or casts out demons or purifies houses. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Sooner that you and I realize everything in this life is about Jesus, the better off we'll be. Verse 12, in Him, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved in a nutshell is here in verse 12, in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's how you're saved, faith in Jesus Christ and what He historically did for you. He loves you. All He wants is you. He doesn't need your stuff. He wants to free you from your stuff. 
That can be a bondage all unto its own. Verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Paul says, don't be discouraged because I'm in jail. Gives me a chance to catch up on my letter writing. And so he wrote the book of Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. I mean, how God answers your prayer sometimes is amazing, isn't it? I'm sure Paul said, man, I'm on all these missionary trips and I need to write these guys back at the churches that I established and just encourage them in the faith, see how they're doing. But man, I, I don't, man, it'd just take me forever to catch up on, on my email list. So God says, well, I'll give you some time. I'll put you in jail. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what I want. That's not what I thought would happen. Be careful how you pray. And then be open to God answering that prayer in some very unique ways that will humble you and surprise you and bless you all at the same time. All that we do. And Paul will get back to his original thought there in verse 14, which we'll pick up next week. All that we do is because of all that God has done for us. I'm simply responding with a, a grateful heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving me, for loving me for seeing me through this trial, for selling this off and for getting me this job and providing this place for me to live in and clothes and a car to drive. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. We don't thank Him enough. God had always intended to make one body out of Jews and non-Jews. We're all made in His image, and He's desired to reconcile all of us to Himself. That's why He sent Jesus. This mystery called the church wasn't clearly seen in the Old Testament uh, but nor was the intervening 2,000-year church age. The, the believers in the first century thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. We look at the signs of the times which seem to be telling us that Jesus' could return could be imminent with this invasion of Israel and the forces of the Philistines once again rising up and Hezbollah from, from the north and Syrian rockets coming over. From that away... And if Iran gets drugged into this and Russia gets drugged into it and China gets drugged into it, you have Armageddon in a teaspoon. So when do you think would be a really good time to turn over your heart and life and everything else to Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior? Because if you wait for the first nuke to be lobbed, it's too late. Way too late. Here's the deal. Jesus is coming again soon. Very soon. Nearer now than when we first believed and the I'll tell you what, I'm watching the news and going, yes, Lord Jesus, come on back anytime, anytime at all. I'm ready. I'm ready. He wants you to be ready. Are you good with God? Are you good with God? Is He good with you? Are you filled with His Holy Spirit? Are, are you reading His Word? Are you seeking His face? Are you praying? Are you sharing your faith and praying for the, the lost around you? Then you'll put a smile on the face of God knowing that there is a rich reward awaiting you. And I don't have all of the answers, but a smart pastor will t steer you towards the one who does. God's got everything under control. He wants you and I to worry about what? What's he want us to pray about? That's your marching orders. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Lord, you already put it on their heart. They know exactly what to do. So I pray that as they walk out the parking lot and, and, and head on about their business, that you, your Holy Spirit would be reminding them to put into practice everything that they heard this morning. We're anticipating your imminent, arrive, your imminent 
arrival and pray that you would bring revival to the hearts of your people between now and the day that happens. We love you, Lord, with all of our hearts and are so thankful that you first loved us. We praise you, we worship you, and we lay our lives again before you, a living sacrifice. Use us for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God is good. <laughs>